The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning. This is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World. And I have such a great pleasure to have Carter Niemeyer and perhaps his wife, Jenny Niemeyer, who's sitting there in the background and helping us along, uh, back as our guests again today because we didn't get to finish everything we were talking about uh, last week on the previous episode. In that episode, we covered a lot of the management and history and uh, what's going on in Carter's books. You've got to read Wolfer and his newest book, Wolf Land, and... Um, Um, Through the time span between those two books, there's a lot of change of heart that went on. So you might start reading Wolfer and think Carter is not your best friend because he was a wolf trapper and a wolf killer for our federal agencies and wildlife services, which we're going to talk a lot about more on other episodes and have talked about before. But, you know, things change. The world changed. And the world is now getting to a point where wolves are back and we do need to find ways to live with them and Carter Niemeyer is one of the best guys around to help us not only the advocates and wolf lovers but the management and the people who literally have to live with wolves in in conflict or in concert find some coexistence between livestock and predators so today we're going to talk a little bit more about wolf management and the history of it that um, as Carter says, it's anecdotal. So, Carter, welcome back. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So, let's kind of just dig right in. Um, a lot of what you talk about in both your books is that the history that we do have around this mythical, mystical, most loved and also revered and also reviled animal, the wolf, it's back. So, a lot of the histories you talk about and if you've written about is we don't really know. It's kind of just passed on through story. Help us understand some of the differences between the mystery and the reality. Well, the wolf's reputation, of course, is uh, usually in the, plays the part of the villain or the bloodthirsty killer. So um, I think people in North America have kind of grown up with, uh, you know, the big bad wolf, uh, Little Red Riding Hood and all that um, fairy tale business. But, um, you know, the gray wolf is a iconic animal. It's a native uh, 
species to the North American continent. And uh, I just have had the, the pleasure of uh, spending a career working around wolves and kind of sorting out um, truth from fiction and um, just realizing that they're a very misunderstood animal. So hopefully today you're going to help us understand this animal a little bit more, not only from the conflict side, livestock killers, which they do, but also from this mystique side and the whole concept of the Native American worship, the wolf spirit. So somewhere between all of that is a real animal that probably doesn't quite live up to either of the fulfill either of those villain or spirit but it is a real animal and this is one thing carter i love about your books is it is not wistful in the sense of you know rebuilding on this fairy tale you have a very real relationship with wolves and i'm going to say probably 85 percent of the population do not Maybe it's, maybe it's less than that, but I'm going to say the majority of the population, if you're not ranching cattle, sheep, or chickens, or out there in rural America, don't have a real relationship with a wolf outside of captivity. And that's a whole other animal in itself. So um, let's talk about some of this anecdotal uh, information that has sort of down through the years become fact. And that fact is what we end up basing wolf management upon. Can you help us clarify some of that? Well, again, I think the, the wolf has always uh, been feared and resented uh, simply because I guess it, um, one reason I guess is that it howls and uh, that puts the fear of uh, God into people's heart. And um, its history has always been rough uh, on the North American continent. We'll just focus on that. Um, you know, where pioneer settlers uh, slowly uh, took over the landscape and, and homesteaded. And the wolf was there from the start, you know, living uh, in concert with uh, bison and other large ungulates like deer and elk and, and uh, living off the land and eating those prey. And then as uh, we introduce livestock onto the landscape and, and through uh, some, uh, I guess, mismanagement, uh, commercial hunting and, and uh, literally the slaughter and eradication of the bison, uh, the wolves had to shift to some kind of food. And, and uh, the next best choice was uh, cattle, sheep and livestock. So we got off to a bad start with them, and uh, of course, uh, war was declared on the wolves, and by the 1930s, they were pretty much uh, eliminated from at least the lower 48 states. So when, you, when you're talking about you know heading west from the European continent, there are wolves elsewhere in the world. So we, people, we brought these fears with us, and we implanted them on the native population of, of wolves, so what, and, and this fear, and if they want anything we want, heaven forbid, any carnivore that wants what we want or interferes with what we want, uh, resource-wise or taking what we need. So um, now let's get into when did we first? So we extirpated wolves. We got rid of them to get rid of us. And listeners, read Wolf Wolfer, 
uh, Carter's first book. It's available on Amazon and uh, or other bookstores. It's an excellent read. It's not an easy read, it, uh, especially if you go into it with your back up and your feathers already ruffled because you're going to read some stuff that you're not going to want to hear and you're going to see some pictures that you're not going to want to see. But stick with it because this is where the the crux of what we're talking about today. We have to bring both sides of the fence on either side of wolves together so that wolves do have a place, their rightful place here, and we people, and this is what we're going to talk today, uh, of, that we have to change our mindsets. So um, when did the, f- so we started with a wolf management plan that was eradication, and then we didn't have to worry about it for a while, and then wolves started coming back, and then we reintroduced them. And when we reintroduced them, we had to create a wolf management plan. Uh, can you tell us what that plan is, sort of in its essence? This is hard data, people, um, facts, and how we're going to deal with wolves on the landscape when we meet them. Can you help us understand what the wolf management plan is? Well, actually, uh, wolf management plans are, are individual documents uh, today <clears throat> because um, – uh, federal government, of course, were in charge of the reintroduction and the recovery stages of uh, gray wolves. But then as the uh, states eventually and gradually took over management from the federal government, uh, it was necessary, at least in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, to write uh, wolf uh, conservation and management plans. Uh, and that was a requirement, at least in, in those states, to uh, demonstrate to the federal government that the states were uh, going to be able to manage wolves into perpetuity and uh, describe through their management plans um, what their recovery goals were and what their intentions were so that um, ultimately, you know, the wolves were uh, managed so that uh, we don't destroy them entirely again. And this gets convoluted because, as we talked about previously, wolves were introduced into deep wilderness areas where prey was abundant and where human presence was limited, yet we still had human livestock into these areas. And as we talked about, there's more livestock on federal and public and federal and state public lands. So it gets a little convoluted. Um, I'm not quite sure, and maybe this will help us understand how it went from the Federal Endangered Species Act protection down to state. How does that little wicket happen where from a reintroduction and endangered species point of view, okay, now we have enough viable wolves, X number, that we can turn the management over to the state. Um, is that a conflict of interest? Is it proving to be a conflict of interest? Or is it proving to work out? Well, in the, uh, in the final uh, environmental impact statement, of course, um, the intention always was for the federal government to um, recover wolves to a point where states would eventually take over management. So that was always the plan and the intentions. Uh, and we were talking, you know, 300 wolves uh, equitably distributed over, uh, you know, the three recovery areas in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. And, of course, today uh, we've got roughly 2,000 wolves. So um, 
we we have more than achieved our goal uh, according to the uh, environmental impact statement goals anyway. So um, as my experience working with the federal government was that uh, in many respects it was easier to be wolf manager managers because um, we had a lot more latitude to work and probably less uh, political interference. Um, the states, on the other hand, now um, uh, more closely related to the uh, people on the ground living in those states. Uh, state fishing game agencies have a lot more people to answer to, you know, from the governor, the legislature, uh, commissions on down to the county levels and you have livestock organizations, you know, cattle, uh, cattlemen's organization, uh, sheep, wool growers, um, and of course you answer to hunters. So uh, it's a little more complicated for state managers to try and balance uh, the needs of society when it comes to wolves. So now we've brought in hunters and once you get into state management in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, that's, you know, good western lands, good open lands, and good hunting lands, because that's where the, the prey is. So what is, what were the conflicts, or I'm, I'm imagining there were a lot of conflicts once it got over to state management, because under federal protection you couldn't hunt them unless it was a problem or a confirmed and verified kill, which is what we talked about last week about how you go about doing that. And you can learn more about that in both of Carter's books, Wolfer and Wolfland. Um, but when you started turning, when we, the governments, started turning wolf management plans over to the states, then you've got the hunting lobbies. And not only the lobbies, but the hunters, the licenses. So that plays a pretty big part. Or does it play? I guess this is a question for you. How big a part does that lobby and that pressure play on the politics of how many wolves can be killed, open season on on wolves, and quotas? Well, of course, uh, we talked about before, you know, people who hunt and fish by licenses and uh, are one of the primary funders for fish and game agencies. So uh, um, the interest of hunters is very important to the fish and game management agencies that manage uh, wolves. Uh, so there's this concern and uh, Yellowstone National Park has always been the example of there were you know estimated 19,000 elk in, in Yellowstone and uh, about the same time that wolves were reintroduced uh, those numbers were declining uh, for a whole number of reasons you know just uh, you know drought was one of the big factors so anyway there was this decline of elk in Yellowstone and that's always been sort of the uh, flagship example of uh, what wolves do to elk and, and cause these uh, apparent severe declines to the point that, uh, you know, hunters are concerned there's going to be no elk left to hunt. Uh, but I want to emphasize that if you check with uh, fish and game agencies like the states of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, uh, the statistics certainly don't show that, that uh, elk have declined uh, just a quick example in, in Montana, this is their figures. Uh, wolves, uh, since wolf reintroduction 20 years ago, the elk population in Montana has actually increased 20,000 head. Uh, so you could say 1,000 elk per year. Uh, 
In Idaho, uh, the most recent elk hunt in 2015 was the fourth highest uh, elk harvest on record in the state of Idaho. And uh, talking about the state of Wyoming quickly, uh, they're they're, uh, 30,000 elk approximately over management objectives. That means there's more there than the Fish and Game Agency want to manage for. Uh, So this is just some of the uh, information where... uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, elk are in trouble, but in reality, they're not. So the hunters and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife listen to the hunters because that's where a good proportion of their money comes from. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. Um, so their their politics are a bit swayed by where their funding comes from. And uh, the hunting lobby sort of wants to draw a direct line between loss of elk and wolves as the only two players on the field, so to speak. But do wolves take trophy elk, or aren't they usually taking the ones that are lagging, the ones that are showing um, that have gotten away from the rest of the herd, or the young, or the ill? Do wolves go after the the fittest and the best? Um, Wolves are opportunistic. Uh, Wolves will take whatever they can catch and whatever they can get the easiest. <clears throat> and um, that's kind of what we learn in, in, in uh, biology in college. Uh, we talk about uh, they kill the, the weak, the sick, um, the in, infirm, and that's very true because they're not as smart or they're unable to escape, and so that's what the wolves get first. Um, when snow gets deeper and, and elk are struggling in, in deep snow, uh, then perhaps the, some of the big bulls that uh, are worn down from uh, the rutting season in the fall, they become a little more vulnerable. But um, but the, hopefully by then they've passed on their seeds, so to speak, and they're a little worn out. And uh, the wolves are pretty smart, too. They're not going to necessarily go for a chase that is going to outweigh their ability to catch it. There comes a reasoning point, I guess it would be inherent or instinctual, that this is bigger than I can get, it's taking me too long to get it, and I'm burning more energy and calories that I can't afford, so let's give up this chase and find something easier. That's typical predator behavior. Well, and there are studies that uh, distinctly show that uh, predators often harvest, and we'll just talk about elk real quickly, often harvest uh, older animals. Uh, some of the less productive cow elk that are killed by wolves um, probably aren't as desirable in that elk herd as the younger, more productive elk. And uh, in studies, it has shown that uh, human hunters often kill cows that are some of the uh, most productive animals and younger animals in the herd. So in other words, we have pretty darn good, healthy herd elk and deer herds, because we talked about this in the previous episode, and once again through the books, and if people want to read the data, it's we've got pretty good ungulate herds, prey, prey species herds. So we've talked a little bit about where the funding come from, comes from. So right now we're going to step to a break, but definitely come back because we have some interesting issues to talk about in terms of wolf advocacy, what it's doing, how it's helping, how you can help, and then some of the news that's hitting the headlines today. So stick with us, and my guest Carter Niemeyer will be right back. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, our wild world. Ellie Weiss and my guest Carter Niemeyer. So where we want to head to now is wolf advocacy, wolf wolf funding, and wolf tourists. So uh, Yellowstone, as we've mentioned, is one of the few places where tourists, by the millions, can see wolves. So Carter, you had just said, Carter and Jenny, you just said something very interesting. So here's uh, a wolf pack that is bringing in thousands of tourists and viewers through park fees and all of that. I don't know if those fees go to maintaining any wolf management. and But they watch these wolves all day. And then there's this imaginary, so to speak, drawn boundary line where the park ends and ranch land and open land and cattle starts taking place. So you had said an interesting thing, Carter, that um, we're, we've got these tourists watching them through a spotting scope. And then they cross this line, and we've got hunters waiting for these wolves, looking through a rifle scope. So um, what we had said before is here's a pack in Yellowstone where they're protected in Yellowstone. And I think the tourist view is that they're there, and they're happy, and they stay there. But that's not the truth. What happens when they cross that line? The Not the tourist, but the wolf. I use the term habituated. Uh, wolves stand in Yellowstone National Park all summer and are observed by tourists looking at them through spotting scopes. Uh, and then this same wolf pack wanders out of the park boundary and uh, moves into these hunting districts or hunting zones, which are right at the 
at the boundary line, and suddenly it's a rifle scope pointing at them. Um, it's legal to do. It's just not very sporting. And um, but there are hunters who will resort to taking these habituated wolves. A wolf is a wolf when it comes to hunting, I guess. So we're not really making strides forward and understanding that, you know, not not all wolf is the same wolf. That some of these need a chance. And there was a story uh, last year, two stories of a wolf, two wolves that made it out of Yellowstone and all the way down to the Grand Canyon, and um, they where they were thus killed through misidentification. So maybe we could talk about that for a little minute. Um, how hunters go about being educated to know what they're shooting? Well, I think, again, uh, the emphasis should fall on the fish and game agencies um, outside of normal wolf range because uh, so often states further away from uh, where wolves normally live don't prepare hunters for the possibility that uh, because wolves disperse over hundreds of miles, that uh, when you're out calling coyotes, for example, that could be a wolf that's coming into your predator call. And that's often what's happening, and that's what happened down in the uh, Arizona-Utah area. Uh, the wolf was seen, um, but when you're out calling coyotes and you're in camouflage and in thick brush, often you see a predator coming toward you and you... Uh, always assume it's a coyote because that's all that you've ever seen or experienced. So um, public needs to understand that as these wolves uh, try and move out of these uh, heavily populated areas where wolves are crowded, they are going to start showing up in places like Arizona. Uh, I shouldn't say Arizona as an example so much because they have the Mexican wolf there, but Say, let's pick Colorado. That'd be a good uh, neutral area where wolves, I think, will eventually show up. Well, they are. We've gotten several stories in our local paper, which is not like the New York Times or the Washington Post or anything. Um, and two big front page uh, th of the three locals that wolves are heading our way. So that's a good educational point for the general public but um, there's a lot more that can be done and I think that's a lot of what you do in some of your workshops and what we were talking about previously in being proactive so maybe this is a point where we bring in wolf advocacy groups there's the big international NGOs like Defenders of Wildlife uh, World Wildlife Fund and all of these that do operate in the U.S. And as we were going through Facebook uh, yesterday, a big headline came up that uh, in the Washington, uh, the Northwest, the Northwest Wolf Management Plan, wolves have been successful. And um, I, you can give us more facts, but there is a pack, the Profanity Pack, that is now um, going to be lethally removed. Help us understand this because it's going to upset a lot of people. And it's going to make some hunters very happy. So here we've spent a lot of money to get wolves back so that they can naturally procreate and naturally disperse. And then they do. And then what? It seems like there's 11 packs in this area. So this pack has been proven to do some depredations on livestock. So within the wolf management plan and defenders of wildlife, it's a sad day because now 
they're going to be lethally removed. Help us understand how some of this works. So maybe our listeners can become more active in advocacy and know which advocacy organizations to work with. Well, as you talked about there, Washington State has a wolf uh, conservation and management plan, and, and in that plan, uh, it discusses all the possible scenarios that could happen. Uh, and one of those topics, of course, is livestock depredation by wolves. Um, and they have a protocol that they intend to follow. And more recently, uh, the Wolf Advisory Group, who uh, is uh, an advisory group to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, have further fine-tuned their protocol and, and talked about uh, the number of livestock that can be killed over a certain period of time. I believe it's uh, four depredations uh, within a calendar year or six depredations in two calendar years uh, by a wolf pack uh, can result in that pack being lethally removed. Uh, and the protocol also does spell out some uh, non-lethal steps that livestock producers are supposed to follow before those wolves can be lethally removed. In the case of the profanity wolf pack, uh, all of those conditions were met and the wolf advisory group um, protocol advised the state that um, they could probably go ahead and kill these wolves because uh, it appeared to be a chronic situation that wasn't going to end. So here we have the classic example of livestock on open, these are public lands I'm assuming, and some of the uh, non-lethal method, methods you were talking about is Fladry, um, the range rider system, having somebody out there. And um, so let's let's stop a little minute here. What are we looking for in terms of the range riders and livestock owners when their cattle are out there? What are they looking for to know that wolves are around? Well, first, I want to clarify, too, that the rules are the same uh, on public land as private land. So okay. if, if these um, depredations occur on, in either situation, uh, the results and the protocol are, are applicable. So um, one of the non-lethal steps that uh, is being emphasized in the state of Washington is using range riders. Um, some of the range riders are being sponsored by uh, a group uh, like Conservation Northwest, for example, have a range rider project uh, of their own. And then, of course, the state of Washington, Washington Department, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife also sponsor range riders. And these range riders uh, are supposed to maintain a pretty close vigilance of livestock. Uh, especially in areas where there's a, a likelihood that wolves could get into those stock. And the range rider, besides just looking at the animals to make sure that they're every day and, and uh, that they're healthy, they also look uh, for behavioral change in, in cattle. And the term often is called see if the cattle are settled. So if the cattle are laying around uh, chewing their cud and, and look comfortable, um, probably not a problem. 
But if those same cattle are spooky, nervous, fidgety, uh, and when the range rider approaches, uh, they often uh, take off running through the brush, it could indicate there's a disturbance going on, and, and that disturbance among a whole variety of possibilities, you know, uh, wolves, mountain lions, black bears, grizzly bears, uh, even domestic dogs could have them stirred up. But one of the other side benefits, of course, of range riders, too, is that uh, you kind of keep an eye on the livestock. You might recognize that uh, rustling is going on, which could be, you know, people stealing livestock or killing it and butchering it for food. And uh, you can also see if there's a calf that's sick and needs uh, uh, some kind of treatment to save its life before it dies from disease. So, uh, and then, of course, there's looking at where the cattle are. Are they distributed over the uh, rangeland? Uh, are they down in the riparian zones where they could uh, damage uh, some of the wetlands? And uh, range riders sometimes have to move them out of those places and get them back uh, on some uh, drier grassland. So there's just a multitude of tasks a range rider can perform. Well, when you're talking about this, it sounds like the old west days where you actually had cowboys out there watching their herds so something happened somewhere in this age of industrialization and cattle 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 everywhere that maybe humans kind of stopped their responsibility and accountability for these cows and um, decided since there were no wolves and we didn't have to think about wolves that everything was fine to me it seems common sense that you would like a sheep herder you have somebody out there keeping an eye on your cows it seems to make uh, just logical sense and economic sense well you you're you're absolutely correct and and one of the uh, i guess uh, uh, major changes in in growing cattle especially was that uh, seems like most ranches you know to cut costs and make it more economical uh, with the lack of wolves in the landscape, uh, they did cut back a lot. And so um, instead of multiple cowboys or range riders out on the range checking on the stock, a lot of them are, are family operations now uh, on a smaller scale. And um, I think it's the reality of the times we live in that uh, range riders absolutely are going to be an essential uh, ingredient in raising livestock where it's uh, tough to keep an eye on them every day and, and some of these public range uh, situations like where profanity is uh, located, uh, that is really rough, steep, timbered terrain and very difficult to keep an eye on your cattle there. Well, it sounds like the perfect opportunity for cowboys to make a comeback and um, just, you know, in terms of signs of the times and and us living with in a little more balance with the planet and wanting to keep track of what we're doing and getting understanding nature, then it sounds like it makes perfect sense. So um, I have a question. Who funds these range rider packs? Is the burden of paying them on the, the ranching family or are there government programs or NGO programs that help fund for range riders? Um, the range rider programs are, are fairly recent, you know, in the last few years. And like I say, um, 
in the state of Washington, the state uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife um, are sponsoring and funding some of the range rider program in that state. Uh, Conservation Northwest a, and a uh, advocacy group are also uh, raising money and providing range riders um, in a couple of situations that they're they're sponsoring. And you know, on a larger scale, there is federal money. Um, it's a it's complicated to explain it all today in the little bit of time we have. But there is money out there um, through they call them tester funds. Uh, Congressman Tester out of Montana established this fund, and some of it's used for compensating ranchers uh, for dead livestock. And also some of that money is available to fund non-lethal uh, preventative programs. Uh, range riding would be one of those. Well, we're going to get into this a little bit more because now this segues really well into advocacy groups and understanding what advocacy groups do, which are the good ones, which ones are maybe not so good, and um, where we as the public who want to keep wolves around can send our donations and our attention. So stick with us, my guest Carter Niemeyer, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my 
my guest Carter Niemeyer, and this is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World, and we're talking wolves, and wolves are coming back. So we, as humans, just need to get with the program and find ways to coexist. So earlier in this, this program and in our previous program, we talked about that a lot of the funding for wildlife management and wolf programs through state and federal comes from the public, public tax, do- tax dollars or advocacy groups. So um, like the Range Rider program, where does it get its funding? So it brings to mind that, and, and you talked about that hunting and licensing is what pays for a lot of this. So um, there isn't really a venue that I've come to understand where wildlife lovers and wildlife watchers can fund or give money to a recognized either governmental or non-governmental program to keep wildlife around. I'll use an, a parallel. In Africa, your tourist dollars, your bed fees, all of that goes towards conservation of wildlife within a particular area. So wh- how could we go about creating or bringing to attention ways, venues, and forums for wildlife lovers, wolf lovers, to um, lobby the state or the federal government, I'm not sure, to create a place where our dollars, camera equipment, camping equipment, a portion of that, a sales tax or something, goes to uh, protection conservation or funding these range riders or even funding wolf management. Well, this, this is a very uh, complicated um, issue to talk about um, because, you know, historically, hunters, fishers, trappers, um, sportsmen have funded these fish and game agencies uh, since their establishment. Uh, and so wildlife conservation very much has been funded by, by sportsmen, and, and that's how they look at it. So um, then you get into uh, society being split over, you know, what do we do with our natural resources? Uh, and, you know, and that could be a pheasant or a wolf. Um, do we look at them or do we hunt them? So uh, and then when you start getting into funding, if you review what's going on in, in many states, and I can't talk about them all individually, but in the Western states, um, there are budgets being cut. Uh, there's lack of funding to do what they want to do. And you're talking millions of dollars uh, reduced in fish and game budgets. So how do you make up that difference? Uh, and then you start talking about, well, maybe we can bring the non-consumptive public, uh, the bird watchers, the hikers, um, the wolf viewers in and, and help pay some of the bills for wildlife management. Uh, but the sportsmen, I think, are very concerned about uh, bringing folks like that to the table because um, there's a fear that hunting opportunities are going to be taken away. So the real problem now is to try and balance, uh, you know, if you you have funding coming in, uh, the wolf lover, as you refer to them, they want to look at wolves and they want to hear them howl and they, and they want them left alone. Uh, sportsmen... Uh, want to some sportsmen want to harvest wolves so i guess until we figure out that magic formula um people who wolf watch uh, really don't want to 
provide money to the fish and game agencies as long as they uh, pursue wolf hunting as a as a sport. Well, this this brings us right to the crux of the sticky wicket, where you know we all have to sit around that table, so to speak, and find common ground. We all want wolves around. Yeah, Some of us want. Yeah, Jenny. I'm sorry. No, please. <laughs> I just want to interject something really quick. Um, a few years ago, Idaho Fish and Game created this big uh, meeting. Uh, for the general public, uh, kind of pursuing the idea of other funding sources. <clears throat> and uh, they held it at a hotel downtown. And uh, it was apparently quite expensive to put on. And, you know, they had speakers from all over come. Or they talked about it was just like a two-day thing. And in the, in the end, really the bottom line was that a lot of the wildlife advocates that were may have been hunters, but we're, you know, we're interested in pursuing something like a conservation stamp uh, to help fund non-game projects, uh, wanted the fish and game to promise that they would come up with some sort of plan, you know, give us some way to buy into your system that's new. Um, and so Virgil Moore, the, the director at the time, um, went away, said, I promise I'll come up with something, you know, and he Basically, they came back with a report that said, never mind, uh, we're not doing this. Uh, and, and the bottom line was that the Fish and Game Commission and the governor's office crushed the entire idea. So, you know, you might have a groundswell of interest, but it's being crushed from the top. So until people start playing hardball with these guys, I don't think anything is going to change in any state. And, you know, Idaho is one of the, probably one of the worst, but we also have some of the best resources uh, in terms of you know wilderness and wildlife. Well, you, you so. brought up an interesting point because there was a tiger stamp, and that went to tiger conservation. And you know, admittedly, it was not uh, made. There was not a lot of public awareness around it. I got my tiger stamps at the Denver Ivory Crush. So, I mean, interesting segue, but um, when I went to my local post office and they have all the special stamps and seasonal stamps you can buy, they had no clue about the tiger stamp. So it, it can be done, and I think it's what, what you've just said. It needs to be a groundswell movement of the public to bring pressure, because that's where we are right now. It's the public who needs to bring pressure uh, to get political representatives that lead us into more um, more path pathways of coexistence because as Carter said wolves are here to stay so we do have to find a way and what I was saying and what you said uh, and, and brought in is there is a table so to speak that we call can all sit around and the main common ground is we want wolves some of us want to watch them and watch them you know naturally disperse and become wolf pop populations and packs all across the US and hunters want to kill them the common ground is we need more wolves so it would be the same as lions or the same as elephants it's an iconic charismatic species um, that we have this affinity for that makes it special um, but as Carter's made very clear in his books, it is another animal. It is another carnivore. It is going to bring, bring problems and pressures. So we do need to find, through the public and listeners, we can do this. Write your senators. Write your congressmen. Write U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Because as Carter said, 
in these current political times, all these budgets are being cut back as non-essential. And I'm not ex exactly sure where the money's going and what seems to be essential these days. But moving forward, our ecosystem is critical. And as we talked about through all through all three, this, the last and the first episode with Carter, wolves are an apex keystone species. They are ecosystem architects. And when you can protect that apex predator, it's an umbrella for its entire ecosystem underneath it. So this is really important, folks. We need to get advocacy out there. So on this on this point, there are, and Jenny, you, you had brought this up last week when we were talking, a couple days ago, sorry, it seems like it's been so long, um, about the fracturing of the wolf advocacy landscape between Facebook, between the recognized NGOs, between those that are actually doing the legal work, Defenders of Wildlife, and um, other, and, and I can't, the names escape me right now, that actually do the legal work with the governments. So... Can you help us understand which are some of the good advocacy groups that actually cre make changes on the ground that are working for wolves versus I love wolves and you should too? Well, I think when we're talking about wolf advocacy groups, I'm, I'm not sure there's any real bad ones out there. Um, I think there's some who step up and get more involved than others. Um, it's a situation you see in the state of Washington right now because they have the Wolf Advisory Group in Washington. And uh, you have some Wolf Advocacy Group members on that WAG. And you've got to give them credit for putting their neck out there to sit down and be a part of this advisory group to try to come up with uh, solutions. So um, when you put your neck out there, then sometimes you have to make some uh, public statements um, and, and uh, put yourself uh, on record how you feel. Uh, and that's where I see some of the advocacy groups in Washington caught up in the middle of this right now. Uh, Wolf Advocacy Groups in Washington, and I'm using that example because it's going on as we speak, uh, some are in favor of allowing wolves to be killed as part of the protocol. There's other wolf advocacy folks on this same advisory group that are totally opposed. Um, that, of course, now makes people try and decide, do I want to give money to this group or that group? Um, my, my advice, I guess, or my perspective is I would give your money to the groups that are the most, uh, politically involved and active that are seeking, uh, solutions and, and change. Um, and that to me means if we keep doing the same things over and over again, and we're not getting anywhere, then, then change is required, change is needed. And to me, an advocacy group that is attacking those issues are the ones that I guess I'd put my money behind. Because you'd mentioned, a, you'd, been, you'd brought this up in a post that you did the other day in sending me a link on the profanity pack and the advocacy groups. And we, we I'm going to say the advocacy groups like Defenders of Wildlife and the ones 
um, involved in the wolf management plan and the wolf advisor group, they came up with a plan. And everybody agreed to the plan. So now the profanity pack is being taken out because it's what the plan agreed to. So as much as we don't want to see a wolf pack taken out, we agreed. So this, in, in terms of when I say we, this was the terms that came to. So in uh, one way it's good because wolves came back. Another way it's bad because there's too many in this one area. And I guess when you get too many of any carnivore predator in one area, um, not moving, clashes are going to occur. So um, I guess in a nutshell to summarize what Carter just said is not all your funding is for wolf advocacy when you fund an organization that does agree to go along with the plan that lethal removal has to happen at this particular time because all the conditions have met. Don't feel that your money is funding anti-wolf. What you're funding is coexistence and creating of a plan that works for everybody. And this is still being worked out as wolves come across and start moving across our landscapes. So we have a, a few minutes, like, a, yeah, a few minutes here left. Um, what is, what, give us a story, Carter. In Wolfland, it's, and Wolfer, they're, they're full of wonderful stories. And if anybody wants to know anything about wolves, contact Carter Niemeyer. You can find him on Facebook and um, follow his posts because he has a lot of interesting things to say. And there's a lot coming up with our current political system. So why don't we end this, this episode with a story? Well, my favorite story in uh, Wolfland, my most recent book, is um, my interaction with some hunters who are out... Uh, Actually, these were archery hunters the end of August here in Idaho, and it's happened to me more than once where I, uh, I'm, I, I'm out working in behalf of, in this case, uh, Idaho Department of Fish and Game had me putting some radio collars on some wolf packs for them late in the season, and my work overlapped uh, the early archery season, so I'm out driving around in a fishing game truck perceived to be the game warden and the hunters flag me down and wonder if I'm out trying to arrest someone and I actually uh, try to avoid telling them I'm looking for wolves but usually I have to tell them and uh, create some interesting uh, reactions from people and in the case of hunters very often uh, they say so you're going to go collar a wolf and uh, I think to them I appear kind of arrogant because they don't think it's really possible to do. And they ask me where the wolves are, and, and very often the wolves that I'm looking for are right near their hunting camp. Uh, so this story in Wolfland is about these hunters up in a place called Bear Valley who didn't really believe there were wolves around because uh, most time they were camped by a creek um, or inside their hard-shelled campers. And the wolves were actually howling at night, and they didn't hear them. <laughs> so then uh, they waved me down. We talked. Uh, I showed them radio collars. I showed them traps, told them what my mission was. And they basically told me, good luck. So I went down the road uh, not a half a mile from their camp and caught a wolf and radio collared it, collared it within a couple of days. 
uh, and I was just going to leave. The hunters saw me and waved me down on the road and asked, uh, so how long do you think it's going to take you to get this wolf you're after? I told them I'm done. Uh, they didn't believe me, but I always carry a point-and-shoot camera with me to document my field work. Um, I pulled out my camera and let them go through the photos, and they, they were just, uh, they found it incredible. And I even told them where they could go look, uh, where the wolf was captured, where the ground was uh, tore up. Uh, so you make believers out of them. And actually, the hunters were really good folks. Uh, they weren't anti-wolf in any respect. I think they were more intrigued by uh, the knowledge they learned from me and, and uh, understood what our mission was studying these wolves and uh, also realized how close they were to, to uh, wolves and didn't even know it. That when you're out there in nature, there's a lot going on that we don't even see. Uh, a lot of times these animals are watching us. Their, their worldview is very different than ours. And there is a wonderful opening in Wolfland. So I would really like our listeners to, to get that book. That, and this is something Carter just said. That, and I think it makes a great wrap to today's show. When you're out there in the wilderness, whether you're a hunter or a camper or visiting Yellowstone and staying in a tent or a lodge, stop talking for a little while. Turn off your car engine and just listen. You'd be amazed at what you hear out there and the connection that it brings you and the peace and the quiet and the, the settling of our own noisy brain suddenly helps us just get in tune and reconnect with nature. So, uh, Carter, Jenny, thank you for stepping in. Unfortunately, once again, we're out of time. It just goes so fast. Thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure visiting with you, Ellie. And what I can sex, suggest, uh, not sex, uh, suggest listeners, is buy the books, read them, learn. And if you see Carter Niemeyer out there in his truck and Carter and Jenny, stop and talk because Carter is a fascinating man to talk to. He's quiet, he's calm, and he's got a wealth of information that can bring us all together. So that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest Carter, and Jenny Niemeyer, and this is Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 